We believe that all people are beloved image bearers of God, imbued with dignity. We believe that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. We believe in the reality of redemption. Still, we cannot deny that the human story is one filled with oppression and injustice. But although we can't deny it, we can defy it. We can use our eyes to truly see the injustice around and within us. We can let our hearts fill with the compassion of Christ for those who are suffering. And we can put our hands to work to right these wrongs and break these cycles wherever we find them. We can participate in the coming Shalom. We can choose justice. out there today. Familiar faces from times past, familiar faces from last week, and friends have had for a long, long time. It's a joy to be here, and I hope it is for you too. My name is Benjamin, one of your pastors here, along with Pastor Melody. Okay, so justice. Last week, we learned almost all there is to know about justice in one sermon. It was incredible. Well, there may be a little bit left, because we have about four weeks to go in this series. So, like you saw in the video, like we said last week, we're going to start by taking a look at our eyes. That sounds weird. Take a look at our eyes. We were looking at someone else's eyes. Anyway, we're going to look with our eyes. We're going to talk about the heart and what happens in our hearts when we see injustice. And then, finally, the hands and what can we do. But today... We need to spend some time talking about our eyes and the way that we see, or maybe the ways that sometimes we don't see justice and injustice around us. So this word justice, we talked about a lot last week. It's, it's a noun, right? An, an idea, a concept, but it's something that has to be executed. It has to be carried out. It has to become a verb right? So it may seem like, why aren't we just talking about the hands part? Why don't we just go straight to the hands because we have to do justice. Like, like Micah says, you have to do justice. But there's a reason for that. Because like all real transformation, it comes from the inside out. So we start with eyes. Have you ever heard that expression, the eyes are a window to the soul. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that. I tried to find where that was from, and it's funny when uh, people don't know where a quote or an expression came from, they usually say, um, it's probably some form of something from the Bible and Shakespeare. That's, where, that's everyone's go-to of like, we don't know where this came from, so we're going to go to the two most influential things on the English language, and they're probably true, um, probably right. Eyes are the window to the soul. So I, I think that means, you know, you can look at someone's eyes and get a feel for what's going on inside them, right? Or if you're um, my wife, you just look anywhere at the body, face, expression, body language, and you can know exactly what's going on 
inside her head at that moment because it's all on the sleeve. Um, some of us have pretty good poker faces, though. Some of us introverts, we've done well with that. But still, there's something about the eyes, right? This, this window, or some, some cultures say it like a mirror to the soul. But what if the reverse could also be true? What if what's going on inside of us affects what we see and how we see? And I think psychology proves that to be true pretty quickly, right? We know things like confirmation bias. That's a fun one, right? That's where uh, that means you're looking for and interpreting things that confirm notions that you already have, right? You're trying, you're, everything you see is confirmation of what you already think is confirmation bias, if you're not aware of it anyway. And a few weeks ago, we talked about that fun thing, the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, right? You're shopping for a car, and then you see that car everywhere you look, in every street, in every parking lot. And it didn't just, there aren't more of those cars suddenly, right? You're just noticing them. So that's interesting, isn't it? What is inside affects what we see. And more importantly than psychology, the Bible is full of proverbs and teachings and stories that confirms that. What's going on inside determines what comes out of us. And we've thought of that like out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, like what we say or what we do. And that's true wisdom for sure. But I'm going to go ahead and claim today that what's inside of us has so much to do with what we see and how we see. So when we first enter a life of faith <clears throat> with Jesus, we tend to look for God in, in the obvious places, right? Our Bibles and our churches and our prayers. And that is good and beautiful, no doubt. But then we keep growing. We keep maturing. And we start to make some progress. And we start to learn that God can actually be found all over the place. He cannot be contained anywhere. And we sing one, uh, that song, So Will I. It says, every painted sky, a canvas of your grace. Right? We start to see God in nature and in the giggle of our little niece or nephew or something like that. We see him in the blessed spaces of love. And that is good and beautiful as well. But when we continue to grow and mature, we start to see God in what I would call the most unlikely, unlovely, and unholy places. Not just the good and beautiful, but the most unlikely, unlovely, and unholy places you can imagine. It's like when the phone rings at 2 a.m., and an abandoned baby needs a home, needs some arms to go to, some of us say yes. And a few hours later, they hold a stranger's baby, and they look at that face, and it's the face of God. Or it's a group of women from a nonprofit here in Tampa that they go into strip clubs, and they lavish love and grace on women who work there, and they see the face of God on their tear-stained cheeks. They don't really have a problem with working there, but they know these ladies have some peace, something that they don't have. And we may even see the face of God in the people that we think 
deserve the turmoil or suffering that's come to them? The people who we expect to be an enemy? The people who are actively violating shalom in their lives and in their homes? We may even see God's face there. And that might sound a little strange, radical, confusing, I don't know. But let's go back to the sheep and goats for just a second from last week. Remember the king character who's sorting the sheep and goats to the left and to the right at the judgment? Jesus called that guy the son of man, which is what he calls himself. He said, hey, sheep, come on in because you guys saw when I was cold and hungry and imprisoned and you came and you blessed me. And they said, but we never did that to you. And he said, but when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And another time, he said a similar thing about whoever receives little children, receive him. See, Jesus was always identifying, like we said last week, he was always identifying with the least and the last and the lost. And he still does. And even when we deem the least and the last and the lost to be a little too unlikely or unlovely or unholy, especially when we do, here's how Father Richard puts it, Richard Rohr. He says, when we can see the image of God where we don't want to see the image of God, then we see with eyes not our own. When we can see the image of God where we don't want to see the image of God, then we can see with eyes not our own. That's what our friend Zach Elliot calls mature love in his book, Now I See. Mature love. Mature love. Mature love can see the injustice that we participate in and unsuspectingly perpetuate in our ignorance. Mature love can start to see the injustice that's causing others to suffer, even if we're quick to judge that the suffering is on them. It's their fault. Mature love sees the link between consuming pornography, like it's nobody's business, and human trafficking. Right? We start to see the link between these things. That these violations of shalom both devalue and denigrate and dehumanize women and men and children for the same reasons. Mature love knows that bringing shalom or just wholeness to the issue of human trafficking might need to start with our own hearts and behaviors. Mature love sees that if we only surround ourselves with comfortable things and comfortable places and comfortable people, then we're not seeing the face of Jesus in the least and the last and the lost. And that although our comfortable surroundings can be good and beautiful, we are perpetuating the suffering of the less fortunate if we never leave our comfort to be broken and poured out for them, for Jesus. Mature love sees like Jesus sees. Mature love sees reality as it is, commingled reality, commingled reality, the good, the broken, and the future. Mature love sees the good and the broken and the future. Back to Zach's book, Now I See, he tells a story about when he 
uh, back in Washington or Oregon, uh, worked on a narcotics task force in the state police. So we all have our narcotics task force stages in life, right? That phase we go through. So for whatever reasons, he was drawn to this work. He's doing narcotics task force work in the state police. And he said sometimes his job was to go through people's trash, right? Investigators have to go through people's trash. And he had to look for drug paraphernalia or evidence of drugs. And sometimes he would find that. But usually he would find a lot more than that. He would find receipts for diapers. He would find toy packaging. He would find coloring pages and old photos. Though he had to look for the brokenness, the drug evidence, he would also find the good and the beautiful there as well, there in the garbage. That is what he means with this word commingled. Seeing the good, the broken, and the future all at once. That's how Jesus sees, and that's how mature love sees. Jesus sees that way. When, it, when, when everybody else saw a guilty, shamed, adulterous woman getting thrown down into the dirt, Jesus saw someone whose unique beauty and dignity called for mercy instead. When others saw a bunch of annoying kids getting in the way, Jesus saw young people who deserved love and attention. And he saw a moment to teach the grown-ups a kingdom lesson, too. When others saw poor, uneducated country fishermen, Jesus saw the man he would call the rock that he would build the church on. In other words, he saw the good, the obvious good and the hidden good. He saw the broken, the pride of the obsessive rule keepers and the shame of the lepers. And he saw the future, the coming wholeness, the unstoppable reality of the coming shalom. He saw the one true narrative of the redeeming of all things. And it was from that place, that place of seeing, that he worked for justice. From that place, we work for justice. From that place. But how do we see like that? How do we see with mature love? How do we recognize the good, the broken, and the future like Jesus does? So this whole idea of our friend Zach's book came from this moment he had what I call a divine download, right? Something was downloaded into his heart, his mind, his spirit. He wrote it down. And then he went on this journey. And you may have heard us talk about V3. That's the name of, of Zach's ministry. Um, so what that means is, is this. V3. There are three Vs. Vision up, vision in, vision out. Vision up, look to him. Vision in, look like him. Vision out, look with him. And today we're talking about looking with him. But to do that, we had better back up a little bit. So this framework, this framework right here has been invaluable to us, to Pastor Melody and I, as we have brought it into our church's planning and decision-making, what we spend time doing and saying, our series. 
And this discussion, like I said, it's more of a vision out discussion. But we need all three because we can't look with him if we haven't looked to him so that we can look like him. We can't really look with him until we've looked to him to look like him. It's a beautiful and never-ending cycle of the life of faith for a Christ follower. So it starts by setting our eyes on Jesus as our example and our teacher and our master and our Lord and the perfect expression of the essence of God. Is that right about Jesus? The perfect expression of the essence of God. We look to him in the Bible, in prayer, in worship, in reading, in listening, in nature. And as we look to him, his love and his mercy and his grace and his glory begin to transform us. We begin to look like him. We begin to believe that he really does love us that much and that maybe he even likes us too. We begin to understand that it was his divine delight and love that created us and pursued us and found us and has animated us all along. We begin to see ourselves as he sees us. Look like him. And as we look like him, something amazing happens. Something we never thought possible. Something that all the laws and the best intentions in human history could never have created. Something that empowers us to begin to truly live the way he taught us to live. And that is to love God and love one another the way that he loved us. We begin to look with him. And as we grow into that place, we begin to see the good, the broken, and the future. And as we see it, we understand that we can begin to step into scenes of injustice and scatter the seeds of shalom so that they can have a chance to take root. This seeing is how Nehemiah saw. Let's look at part of this story. What a beautiful story we're left with from Nehemiah. Um, some of this book, he's writing like a memoir, first person, and some of it sounds like someone else is writing it. <clears throat> but what happens is they've come back from exile, from Babylon, and they have rebuilt the city, pretty much, of Jerusalem, but not the wall. And the wall was important to an ancient city-state. Yes, it's the best defense. It's very necessary. They need to rebuild the wall. So Nehemiah feels a call to complete this work, this project, rebuilding the wall. He gets special permission to do this. He takes on the responsibility. He knew it was going to be long and grueling work, costly. It was going to cost everybody pretty much everything they had to give, but it needed to be done. So he guides them into this work. It takes a long time, and during this process, some of the people begin to suffer because they're running out of food. And so they're taking on debt to try to pay for food, to feed their families. And in those days, it was customary that someone could come and take your child, right? You have to sell your child if, they, if you owe too much or for too long. 
So they were suffering under this political and economic systems of injustice around them as they were doing the work on the wall. So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm reading in the ESV. Okay, here, here's the story. Here we are. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. It is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Okay, so I want us to see something important here. Because remember, we're just talking about the seeing part this week. Brett's going to talk to you about verse 6 next week. Okay. So first, I want us to see that he listened. He listened. He listened to the people who were suffering the injustice. He recognized it because he listened to them. He didn't call their protest, their outcry, a public nuisance. He didn't call them petty or distracting. Guys, guys, we're trying to build a wall here. If you could keep it down. He really stopped to listen. It takes time to listen. Really listen. And it takes patience, and it takes humility, especially when you're listening to those who suffer injustice. Because if you're like me at some point, if you're listening, you might get offended while you're listening, right? You might have some judgment creep up from your heart, if you're like me. So it takes humility to really listen. It takes true grace to really listen that's why the super-religious folks have a hard time listening to those who are suffering. Because they've got the answers. Why won't you just do the answers? But that's not listening the way that Nehemiah was listening here. The second thing Nehemiah did was this. Once he saw the injustice that was occurring on his watch, he took responsibility for it. He listened and then said, this is happening on my watch. I will take responsibility. Now, this took place right under his nose, right? On his watch. And I want you to see that this occurred while Nehemiah was doing the work he was called to do. While he was obeying. And how easy would it be to say, I have more important things to do. I know I've been called to build this wall. How easy is it for us to say, for the church, the capital C church, to say, yes, but we're busy building stuff and sustaining and 
and perpetuating stuff. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. But that's not what Nehemiah does. He sees the connection of how one affects the other. The work on the wall is going to be affected if everybody's suffering and hungry. You see? God help us to see that connection. But I also want us to see that he didn't have to blame himself. He didn't have to write a story of failure about himself. I failed. They're starving. It's all on me. And oh, I'm going to question my calling to build the wall because clearly I've been... He didn't have to do that. He didn't write a story of failure for himself. He didn't wallow in condemnation and guilt. He didn't see it and look the other way. But he did take responsibility for the injustice when he saw it and when he heard it. That's what mature love does. Now, I know, I know that we can't personally or even corporately address all the injustice that we recognize when we start to see with mature love. We, we can't cover it all. But that's why we have a worldwide church. But what he did and what we can do is recognize the injustice right where we are, right where we live, right where we're assigned this corner of the planet and take responsibility for that, right? To recognize it and listen. Or sometimes, like with Nehemiah, it's the other way around. Listen to the suffering so that we can recognize what's going on. Okay, skipping ahead to verse 14. To continue this story, Nehemiah 5, 14. Okay, so uh, this is first person, I, right? So this is Nehemiah talking. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years um, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. For 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So the final thing that Nehemiah did here as he used his eyes to see the injustice, he realized that in this case, now hear me, 
he realized in this case, sacrificing some of his privilege was a necessary part to bringing shalom into this injustice. Well, that, that's not a fun thing to say, is it? Sacrificing some of his privilege was necessary in this case to bring shalom to the injustice, to bring healing, wholeness, and restoration to this injustice, these people being taken advantage of. He did not accept the extra food allowance that he was due as the governor. He did not levy a heavy tax on the people, even though there was precedent to do so. He put his own family and his servants to work on the rebuilding project of the wall instead of at his estate, keeping his wealth and his property and his businesses going. And he did provide food for the hungry people, both the Jewish people and the foreigners who had come, the immigrants to that place. He gave up his provisions to provide for those who needed it most. Well, that's mature love. That's costly love. That's Jesus' love. That's using your eyes to recognize the injustice. That's using your eyes to recognize how you can participate in restoration and mending and the setting things right of shalom. Now, I need you to hear this. I was uh, going to choose a certain song for today. And, you know, we try to do that. We try to choose songs that, at least a few of them, that will sort of go hand in hand with the, with the message, right? So it's one we've done before, and the first time we did it, Bobby and I sat up here years and years ago and did this song. It's a challenging song. It's called Song for My Family, if you remember that one. And I thought, oh, that would go great for this message. So I pulled up the chord chart and grabbed my guitar. It's like, well, I'll play through it. So I played through it. It's like, that, that'll probably be good. That'll probably be good. Um, then I put my guitar down, started finishing looking for the other songs, and I thought, hold on. Hold on. I went and I reread the words. I reread the words. And here's part of the lyrics. It says, this is a song for my family outside the walls of Sunday morning from some within. This is a song to confess our sins, to lay it all out and try to begin again, to hope again. It says, please forgive our ignorance and looking down on you. Please forgive our selfishness for hiding in our pews while the world bleeds, while the world needs us to be what we should be. I reread the words, and I had one word come to mind, no. This is not the song for Sunday. That is not the song we need to sing on Sunday. Because what this song made me see is our progress, church, our growth, our mature love that we have stepped into over these years, that our people are not hiding in their pews or blue comfy chairs, 
that our people are running to the bleeding that they see with the healing power of Jesus' love. That's what our people are doing. And when we invite them into another way to do that, they come along. So I thought of another song, a song about seeing, a song that we've done several times as well. Here's the second half of that song. That one's called See the Love. It says, day by day, hope fades away, and then we know that there is pain within we cannot medicate. So learn to feel, learn to begin again. Open our eyes again to see our brother's pain. I hope they see it because I want to see it. I hope we believe it because I want to see the love all around you. And I want to know that love is all around you. See how it lights you up. Element, this is how you have grown into seeing the world and our city and our neighbors and the injustice in this city. To see the love all around. Even the love around the powerful. Even the love around the least and the last and the lost. And the innocent and the guilty. So listen, if you felt a hint, even a hint of shame during this message, because I know, I know, then I understand that, but let's go ahead and say a holy no to that. Can we agree on that? If we felt a hint of shame from this message, we're just going to say no, because that's not of God. But if you felt challenged, good, so do I. Remember, I have to sit with this thing all week. Y'all just get it for 30 minutes. So I feel challenged too, very much so. I see my own growth. I've come a long way, and I've got a long way to go with this. But if you feel challenged, then that's good. In Christianese, they like to call that conviction, right? Feeling convicted. Well, I like to replace that word with the word challenge. And challenge is good. Because a challenge from God doesn't just entail what things he's asking us to put down. Challenge from God always comes with an invitation of what we are to pick up instead. That's how you know it's not condemnation. Because there is no condemnation for you, church. That's already settled. So it's not just about things we're supposed to confess and put down. It's about what things are we invited to pick up. So from that place of challenge and empowerment and inspiration and mature love and looking at the progress we have made as a body toward mature love and justice work, kingdom work, shalom work. From that place, take a look around and take a look within. Where is there injustice that we haven't noticed before? 
down the street or in the halls of Congress or on the foreign shores or in our own hearts or homes? How can we continue to look to him and look like him so that we can continue to look with him? to recognize the spaces of injustice that need the light of shalom to break through. So I'm going to call the band back up. So next week, as I said, we're going to move from talking about the eyes to the heart. We're going to ask ourselves, what happens in, a, in the heart of a Jesus follower when they start to see like mature love sees? What happens in the heart of a Christ follower who recognizes injustice for what it is? Okay, let's pray.